Welcome to the Optimalist Podcast, where we examine just what it takes to ensure humans flourish in the age of AI. I'm Sarah, your host through this exploration of mindfulness, attention, focus, happiness, and motivation, all elements of human flourishing. So how do we cultivate them? This week, I welcome Tim Belmont to the show. Tim is a special guest because he's a longstanding member of our community, and he's also the editor of this very podcast. Tim is a high school English teacher and technology specialist based in New Jersey. Over the past 10 years, he's explored how technology can enhance instruction through projects such as student podcasting and has shared his experiences at various conferences. His own personal interest in mindfulness and meditation continues to affect his teaching practice, encouraging students to be present. Listen as Tim and I discuss his own journey through mindfulness and how he applies that experience to his teaching and why it's so important right now for us to help students find sustainable ways to have better attention in all areas of their lives. All this and more in my conversation with Tim. Have a listen. Over the last 10 years, my role has changed a bit. For example, around four years ago, I, aside from being an English teacher, I'm also my school's educational technology specialist. And over the last 10 years of my teaching, I've sort of had these interests that have popped up here and there that basically come from my personal life that I try and infuse into my teaching and my technology specialist work. And really, some of those things have been um, coding, so mm. computer science, because it's something that I've done just in my free time. I enjoy doing. I've developed websites and then mindfulness as well, which is something that has been really huge in just helping me get to where I am today through meditation. And that's something that sort of came to me more when I was in college. And as far as where my journey is at right now, uh, really, I'm at a phase where I'm exploring just things that I find interesting, mm -hmm. which one thing about myself, which I'd like to think is a strength, but could sort of be a detriment is I have a lot of interest in a lot of different things. So I explore things on the surface level a lot, but then I also try and like dive in. So lately, it's been a lot of interest in things like AI, still in coding as well, and then things like media literacy. So I'm just sort of doing my thing as a teacher and tech specialist and then exploring things that are intriguing to me as well. I'm sure that a lot of not only the things that you're mentioning that you're interested in, but also this attitude and approach towards um, learning and curiosity and following things that may spark your interest or may lead to you finding something else you're interested in just because you are um, putting attention and time into it. Uh, I'm sure mm -hmm. all of that attitude also is visible and noticeable to your students and kind of rubs off on your classroom environment. Would you say that that's true? I mean, I hope so. <laughs> I, I hope to try and inspire just curiosity, which I know has been has been addressed on this podcast before. And just when something sparks some interest, just taking some time to take a look at it and take it in. And um, it's it's interesting because there's sort of this balance between sitting down and having a steady focus on one thing and then still being open to other opportunities and areas of interest that show up. 
But I try and also in my English class, I try and enforce it's not just all about sitting down and opening a book and reading it. It's about exploring other ideas and other mediums as well. I was doing or co-hosting a webinar last week, and we were talking about self-regulation practices that you can teach or set students up to to work on, I guess, now to get them able to do it on their own over the summer. So like, what can you do now Mm -hmm. to kind of give kids tools to almost manage not just their time and the way they spend their summer, but the way um, the way they think about who has control over their time, like they have more control over it than they think, um, as we all do, and their attention. And one of the things that we were talking about was this idea that there, you know, we we get so I think hung up on how can we like what are you interested in like what should you do over the summer what should you um what extracurricular activities should should you or any any particular person participate in like if you're interested in it follow it but we were saying on this webinar that and this is something we believe deeply at focusable as well what if you turn to the person sitting next to you and looked at what they're interested in mm-hmm. and kind of learned a little bit about that and saw and the person across the room and the person across the hall like what if we spend our attention a little bit on things that don't initially drive us to see what opportunities are available outside of our own like i guess predetermined notions of what we're capable of or interested in so that was a long way of saying of kind of latching on to what you were you were saying there of of uh of giving kids like opportunity to explore right yeah, I mean, I I absolutely love that idea. It's something I try to encourage in my English class and also in my public speaking mm-hmm. class as well, because I also teach public speaking, because public speaking in particular is a subject where many students, they walk into the class and they sit down and immediately they're just like, I hate this. I don't want to be here. And the thing I say on the first day to all the students is, the point of you being here is to explore these things right. for the first time. And you may not end up loving it, but you won't know unless you give it a try. And even when they are listening to other students' presentations, you know, there's this idea that in public speaking, it's just a class that's about presenting. But the class is also about being an effective and good and receptive audience member Mm. when your students are sharing things that they care about as well right and so i try to i try to have them keep an open mind for that because a lot of times students will learn something new in public speaking class that has nothing to do with public speaking it's just something that a classmate is interested in right and then also like you bring up a good point there it's not only you as the as the teacher or as the person facilitating whatever it is that they're presenting or doing um, you know, you have to be a good audience member, but I mean, I, I'm someone that took, I took speech in high school too. And then I actually wound up minoring in, in like speech performance in college. So I nice. did this all the time. And to me, one of the most valuable parts was as a student in the class being, having to be an audience member for 30 other people all right. the time. And it's not like the same thing as being an audience member for, you know, a show. Mm hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so 
I'm wondering like if we could maybe talk a little bit about, I do want to talk about your mindfulness journey that you mentioned before when you were giving us a little bit about your background, but I do also want to kind of mix that together with how you notice the skills of mindfulness that you have found so valuable in your own life and bringing them into your classroom, how those skills you kind of see a need for them in students today and not and when we say mindfulness to everybody out there i know we we mention it back and forth on this show a lot and in a lot of other things that we publish but i'm starting to realize that um uh taking a second to just define what mindfulness is is i think important because we are using it as a core part of what we do and talk about and believe in and i think that people have developed their own ideas of what it is so just for our purposes, I think of mindfulness as really being in touch with with awareness, with your present awareness and doing things intentionally. So if you do something mindfully, it can people say that all the time now. I, you know, people say they mindfully eat. It's really just being aware of what you're doing in that moment and only doing that thing. Yeah, I have the exact same definition as you do okay, cool. as far as mindfulness is concerned. I mean, I, as we know, you know, you can expand it into a more formal practice with things like meditation, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to be that. And as far as how I've seen it in my class, when I think about myself when I was in high school and I was in my class, I remember that when I got my first job in high school, I got my first cell phone and it was a Nokia flip phone <laughs> that basically had like T9 word texting and I could play snake on it. That sounds and beautiful. I didn't even know I could. <laughs> yeah, no, it was at simpler times, but, and I didn't even know that I could text on it until I think I graduated high school. Mm -hmm. So I think about me sitting in my high school class and the amount of distractions that I had available to me. And then students today sitting in their high school classes and the amount of distractions that they have available to them through things like technology, it's tough for me to genuinely put myself in their shoes right. because, you know, things like social media and the internet, as I think about quite a bit, a lot of these experiences are tailored just to drain our attention and keep us scrolling. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like this idea that everything is super important, which makes nothing super important. Yes. I love that you're saying that. Yep. And I think about the social lives of my students in their classes and constantly there are new updates and pictures and feeds being updated. And I'm sure that for many of them, there's this fear of sort of being left out and left behind if they're not always giving some attention to that. And I just try to keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. And it helps build a little bit of empathy for the fact that a lot of times students are drawn to their phones and their devices. Do you happen to know in this, the students that you personally interact with every day in your room, do you know of any that do not have per a personal device? Yes, there's a handful. Okay. There are, there are a couple who, who don't, but most of them, most of them. Do. That's something I was reading about the last couple of days, as well as this growing movement towards parents and whole families that are holding out on devices for longer and longer. And so a couple of things that you just said reminded me of some, uh, there was an article I was reading this morning that was really great about, about 
like highlighting students that are like the only seventh grader in their school without a phone. And some things you just said reminded me of things that the kids were saying of like, this one kid said, there was a few other kids that didn't have phones. And then once he reached eighth grade, then the last kid besides him got one. He said, every time a new kid, a kid, someone else gets a phone. He goes, my whole heart sinks because suddenly they won't be looking at me anymore. They'll be looking down or something like that. And he he thinks of it as actually losing a friend. And that was coming from like a seventh, eighth grader. Like wow. every time another kid gets gets a device, like he feels like that person is now gone from real life. And being the kid that doesn't have one, he is in the present moment, which is the whole purpose of this movement, by the way, is how can we get, mm-hmm. how can we keep our kids, not only keep their attention you know, away from where it shouldn't be or give them more choice in how to spend their attention rather than feeling like they don't have a choice. But the other part of it is keeping them in the real world and grounded in grounded in what is actually around them rather than being sunk into something that doesn't really feel like reality, but they it becomes a reality that's not healthy. I don't I don't have a question there. I'm just bringing that up. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm I'm just thinking about it because that's <clears throat> that's pretty that's pretty distressing. It is. I sh- yeah, I tweeted that article this morning and it actually has to do with the issue of the newsletter that we just published today about what it means to be a parent mm-hmm. in this generation. But back to kind of taking like thinking about the way parents might be making the decisions and putting that you know, thinking back to what you're telling us about your classroom, you know, Mm-hmm. We obviously know personal devices are a barrier for everybody in their attention, but particularly, especially if you think of like the span of your career so far, and I think it's helpful that you've been in the same place too. Like, how have you seen over time, like barriers to student attention and present mindedness? You know, how does that kind of show up or manifest itself, even if kids are not physically holding the device in your classroom, like while you're teaching or while you guys are working? Are there certain ways that you see that lack of self-regulation and um, lack of attention show up in school? Yeah, I've seen a couple of different things. Students really do need some direction and some specificity on what the goals and objectives are in the classroom. And I've I've done lessons before where I keep it very open-ended intentionally, sort of with this this idealist mindset where, oh, I'm going to just present students with a bunch of things that are interesting and they'll sort of find their way to the learning. And sometimes that is just, it's not conductive for a good learning experience and it allows a lot of those distractions and it allows just focus to be taken away and placed in other other places. It's sort of like you want to build a scaffold where at first maybe you stay more directed and then once the content is there, once the foundation is there, you can expand a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's one thing where I've adjusted my teaching a little bit where I have it a bit more structured in that sense. So when when you're asking about barriers to attention, mm-hmm. in your mind, when you think of that, are you thinking a barrier that's present in the students' minds already or a barrier in the environment of the classroom or maybe i was asking two things at once there um now that i now that i was listening to you answer yeah i think it's probably both because i 
maybe a better question is not to ask the barriers, but but asking really how we know what some of the barriers are physically. Um, but what you just said, they mm-hmm. are they are mentally there. We all feel the mental pull of or effect of these things. But really, the uh, the question I want to know is how how it manifests itself. Like where are the where do you see differences in attention? How long do you see them spending on one thing before they're they are bored? Like how do you approach boredom? Like how do you approach kids not being interested in something but needing to do it anyway? Um, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Sure. Yeah. One of the structures that I use in my class is I use timers up on my board quite a mm-hmm. bit. And I've sort of latched on to the idea of focusing on one thing for 20 minutes for my students. So in class, when we have a certain task or something to work on, typically what I'll do is I will tell them beforehand, we're going to work on this one thing and I want you to work on it for just 20 minutes. And I almost echo a little bit some of the things that I hear quite a bit during mindfulness meditations. Like if you feel your mind start to wander, just, you know, remind yourself to come back to Mm -hmm. it. And typically that actually works out pretty well. Inevitably, there are students who sort of will drift to other things or they'll be tempted to take out their phone. And as far as the consistency of things like that. There are some students who are sort of more susceptible to doing Mm -hmm. that. But then sometimes I have students who are usually very on point, very focused, who end up either daydreaming or they'll look at their phone. And that's one of the challenges is because there are those personal things that are going on that maybe we don't know about. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to predict all of that. But Again, having that structure where 20 minutes, if you do get distracted, it's okay. Just try to bring yourself back. It sort of creates a space where it's it's developing this practice of attention and staying focused. So I, I do notice that a lot of the students can sit and stay focused on that one thing for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And many of them really don't they don't mind and they recognize that they do get distracted, that they're able to sort of bring themselves back. And I, and I have seen that having some consistency with that throughout the year has made it a, a little bit easier for some of them to stay on track for that amount of time. You know, I would love to hear your, your thoughts about actually making, you know, attention practice or, or however you want to think of it as something that's actually regularly built into what your students do like how how can we make this something that is you know not just for those 20 minutes but like you said kids are constantly practicing bringing themselves back to the moment which is an element of some of the other mindful activities that we know like meditation being one of them but we need to be able to take it out of those practices, which are often seen as like leisure activities and bring all of them into the parts of our day where we need that help and that ability to self-regulate. And I like the way you described that, like you are seeing that they're able to come back and just giving them that 20 minutes. And, you know, we need that ability when we are working or completing a task or getting something done or just being present with people 
being present with her, all all of these things. We need to be able to do that. Letting go of what, mm-hmm. what just happened and letting go of what might happen next and only being here in this moment, even if it's not something that you particularly want to do, like if it's school. Right. Yeah. And, and one thing that I heard a while ago that I found really, really helpful for me in my own work that I am doing, whether it's grading essays or working on a creative project or having to get up early and go do yard work is the idea that motivation is a great way to get people to get up and do stuff. But at a point, motivation inevitably is going to run out. And then you need to have that discipline to do it. And I, I mentioned that to my students as well, where if you just rely on being motivated all the time, it'll only bring you so far. Right. Unless it's something that you're extremely, extremely passionate about. And that's that's great. But inevitably, there will be things that you need to just sort of buckle down and do. And again, I and, you know, I tell myself this as well, is it's not bad or wrong to lose motivation or to lose your focus. It's it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's a thing. And it's not about beating yourself up if it happens and not allowing yourself to ever become unmotivated or unfocused. It's just recognizing, okay, maybe I need to just push myself a little bit further. And as as far as bringing it to, and I, you mentioned earlier, you had this session about bringing some of these ideas into the summer, yeah. right? For students. Mm-hmm. And I think about ways that my students can do this outside of the classroom. And I encourage them, you know, you have a timer on your phone. There are apps available that have timers as well. And it's almost like, you know, try to challenge yourself a little bit. Just sit down and be like, okay, I'm going to take 10 minutes and do this one thing. And then just sort of afterwards, and, and something else that I do in my class is we reflect quite a bit. And doing reflection, seeing how you're feeling during one of these sessions and going back and seeing your progress can be really powerful as well. So just encouraging students to do some of these things outside of the classroom is helpful. And, you know, it, at a point as a teacher, you give students these skills. And then in my mind, if one or two students end up getting something useful from it, that's a win in my book. So I'm going to keep trying to do it. Yeah. Do you do anything like... um do you do anything currently now where you actually have students tracking progress or is that like uh, of how they're, you know, how they might be managing their attention or like just as far as what you can see in school uh, or is that something that you're working towards as a next step? So we do general sort of reflections mm-hmm. on how you're feeling, how you're doing with this assignment. And sometimes students will mention how they're doing with paying attention. I don't explicitly ask, you know, how long can you pay attention for? Right. Okay. But it it sort of organically does come up in some of these reflections. You know, students will mention things like, oh, I'm having trouble focusing today because of X, Y, and Z, or Mm -hmm. I feel like I understand this material a bit better, so I'm able to focus more. Or also in my public speaking classes, we'll have full classes where we're in our school's media center for the block. Mm -hmm. Because it allows students to spread out a little bit. They can sit at tables and I have them set a goal in the beginning of the block. If they didn't reach the goal, I prompt them to write about why, what what happened? Why didn't you meet the goal? Right. And 
sometimes again, a lot of the thing is they'll mention the idea of, of being able to focus or not being able to focus. So um, I'm not doing it formally, but it, it does sort of come out in a, in, in different ways. Yeah. To me, it would be interesting if like the next step there were, and, and they could know this ahead of time, right? That it, cause not being able to focus is such a common response for a lot of people when they're not able to complete something, no matter what it is. And so if mm-hmm. they know that's even like part of that reflection routine is like, if I say, if I say not being able to focus as one, as the reason why I didn't get something done or reach a goal, I'm going to have to explain why I'm going to have to, right. I'm going to have to like tell myself or I'm going to have to write down as part of a reflection. What, what was I not, what was I focused on instead or what was I thinking about or was I doing something else? And why was it like that meta awareness is essential is essential, like to really getting to that next step, I think. And that would be really interesting to yeah. see if they if they know that that question's coming and they know mm-hmm. how often focus is a problem. Like, OK, if I wasn't if focus is why I didn't get here, then why? Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I, I do wonder if it wasn't posed in a way where beforehand I said something like in your reflection if you couldn't focus you'll have to explain why Mm -hmm. i wonder if if i didn't say that beforehand if i got to the end and they wrote they weren't able to focus and then i asked them well why if they would even know right because (laughs) because a lot of times and i mean we've all experienced it where oh i was supposed to do this thing and i didn't but I don't even know what I was doing instead during that time. Right. And and maybe it's not even a question of why. Maybe that's just too much. Like, I, I don't know why sometimes, like you're saying now. But maybe it's a question of just the, the going back to the simple basics of mindfulness and even um, in, in any way that people practice mindfulness of it doesn't matter where your mind went. Just acknowledge that that it went away from the present yeah and that's really it like it Mm -hmm. doesn't even even if you had kids answer why and they were like i was thinking about a fight i just had with my friend in the hall or whatever and doesn't even Mm -hmm. matter like they could cross that out and replace it with anything your mind went somewhere but the job is to bring it back and those other things are okay that they're in your head and as the idea is can i notice that i wasn't doing what i want to do like what do you want what do you want to do in this moment it's not sit here and think of think of things it's it's do the thing that you have a goal set for yeah and i think that's one of the challenges of addressing the idea of mindfulness in a setting like school because one of the things that's always been most helpful for me as far as mindfulness and meditation is sort of approaching it where you can't have this very specific goal in mind Mm -hmm. you want to just it's an experience you just do it and then you just see how you feel afterwards and when it feels like a chore that's when sometimes there's this barrier where oh i i feel i'm doing this i'm doing this thing because i feel obligated to do it or even in school students might start to feel like oh i'm being forced to do this Mm -hmm. and then is there some limit where the benefit sort of disappears because it's walking this fine line between having it be this formal thing so that students get into the habit of doing it, but then having it be informal enough where it seems sort of natural and relaxed as well. So 
And I'm hoping that the way we're kind of just discussing this, it's not like, you know, Tim's not giving us a a report on all of these things that he definitely does, that he definitely thinks work and we should all do in our classrooms. We're discussing it. We're right. discussing it openly as like, here's what he's done personally. Here's what he talks to his kids about and they try and maybe he'll work towards, you know, implementing further a little bit more formal, like who knows, he'll change the way he does it to to make um, adjustments based on what his students need. But I'm hoping this kind of conversation influences people to talk to us about it. Like when you, you know, and, and you know, when you, I know a lot of our listeners are people that follow us on Twitter and literally mm-hmm. tweeting and getting out the conversation about how you see this stuff in your room. What do you think about some of the things that we're, ideas that we're throwing out there of how this can be a more, integrated part of our lives and of our students lives like we want to know what people are doing and what they're not doing and how we could make this better because i think that it's important yeah absolutely yeah all the things i'm saying of course it's all just anecdotal things i've seen in my classes Mm -hmm. and i i think that you know there's a much larger conversation about this in different schools different size schools different grade levels as well so yeah it's a it's an important conversation and I think another thing that's reminding me of a of a conversation I had last week as well is this idea that part of all of this, and it's all valuable, it has, has nothing to do with just being valuable in a classroom. Like it's all the reason why we um, we talk about it so often like this is because it's valuable everywhere. And so even getting, you know, and it can be done in little ways, like even getting kids to be in touch with their senses, like and what's around them in a moment can help them be grounded in what they're doing in that moment. And I do think it's a, what I wanted to also comment on something you just brought up before about students be feeling like they don't want to pay attention because they are in school or doing something that they wouldn't do on their own or that they have to just, they have to hand it in. So they have to do it. And I do think that there is increasingly more and more value in all of us kind of having to do things. We all always are going to have to do things that we don't choose to do. And I think there is a value in in still, even if it's only for tiny bits of time, um, but still kind of having to manage our attention on something that we didn't necessarily choose to do because it build, it builds a discipline. And you never know, like you were saying earlier, you never know what it is that you might find out. You actually do love or do have some interest in because you had to focus on it for a little bit of time and like a light bulb went off. Yeah, totally. I a hundred percent agree with that. And again, it's that idea of just encouraging to have an open mind. And also the idea that if you don't like something in the first five seconds, don't just abandon Mm -hmm. it. Give it a little bit of time as well. Because sometimes that first impression is one thing. And then over time, once it starts to resonate, then maybe that interest gets developed. And I mean, I I think about things that I'm interested in. And a lot of them I was not interested in at first. But then over time, as I learned more, it just I developed a passion for it. it. It's not all just sort of like a lightning bolt all the time. Yeah, and it has to be like that too. Otherwise, I think a lot of us would have would try to have careers in the same things. <laughs> Cuz right, we all yeah, tend yeah. to be um as, as different as we all like to think we are. I think a lot of people, especially when we're younger, are interested in a lot of the same stuff. 
That's mm-hmm. why a lot of you know after school activities are are pop- the mo- you know there are certain ones that are more popular than others. Like I mean, it, we all tend to kind of gravitate towards certain things that we think um, we're interested in, mostly because they already are entertaining to us. And I think that that is a really big thing that we're going to have to grapple with. Now, going into the next, um, you know, the age of AI and and things always being um, readily uh, available to capture our attention because they are endlessly entertaining. Sometimes the best part of a new topic or a new experience is going through that process of figuring it out, that sort of struggle. And you just mentioned AI, and that's one thing that I'm, I think about a lot with artificial intelligence is students can use it for a bunch of different reasons, but I hope that it doesn't get rid of some of that, you know, that productive struggle that happens in life and also in school. Because, you know, in, in my public speaking class, I've developed a couple of things for students to use to help them brainstorm. Mm-hmm. And even then, I've sort of struggled internally is this taking away a process that students would eventually find rewarding, Right, you know, coming up with a topic and coming up with sections. I don't want to take away that whole part of the process because there's like true reward in doing that. So um, over time, it's going to be interesting to see how these tools evolve and then what value is still placed on that. And it makes me think in the future of like even even the not so distant future, even like the the next five years or so of the students of the age of students you're teaching, like what what does that satisfaction feel like? How does it change what it is or does it change, you know, what it is that makes us feel like, oh, we did something worthwhile? Like what does mm-hmm. doing really good individual work mean now? Yeah. Like, how does that change? What parts aren't going to change? Like, this is the stuff that I think about constantly. Like, what parts are are we going to have to figure out how to get back? Because there, we still do need them to feel like we've we have ownership over something and we've done something well. And it's, I mean, I think about some of the things that I'm most proud of, and like I, I mentioned before, how I've done some coding projects and I've made websites and things like that. And now there are a lot of tools that can sort of automate a lot of the things that took me, you know, a month to do. And I felt so accomplished and I felt so much pride when I completed those projects. And if I did the same project now, that thing that took me a long time would take me like two hours. So now I wonder, would I have the same amount of a feeling of accomplishment or would I, like you said, would I get it from somewhere else? So it's Yeah. In- and I think an important part of this when we're applying it to how we work with kids, and this can be even in the in the home setting as well, like as a parent, if you're a parent and listening and you you don't work in a classroom or in a school at all, I think I think we have to all think of these things in a similar way of like how do our how do our how do we even as adults, but more specifically, how do our kids associate or maybe a differentiate pleasure from something with accomplishment, which also can lead mm-hmm. to pleasure. But I think that idea that if I'm going to sit down and spend time on something, I have to love it 
doesn't necessarily always lead to accomplishment or feeling like you've done something really difficult or challenging. Often those really, really, really great experiences that are worthwhile are the things that are, are things that you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have thought you could do, or you didn't necessarily jump into wholeheartedly with like passionate, like abundant passion. Um, and I know we're going in circles a little bit about talking about this interest stuff, but I think something you said before about um, about accomplishment made me think of that. Like, do do our kids really are they able to differentiate between that feeling of just being entertained by what's in front of them and feeling like they did something really worthwhile? It's hard. <laughs> yeah, it, it it is hard. And in my experience, though, just by gauging on the reactions that my students have after an assignment, for example, the students who seem like they genuinely feel accomplished are the ones who initially showed disinterest or seemed like they were struggling a bit. So that still is there. And I think they may not be realizing it, but I definitely can see it when there's that sense of accomplishment. Because pleasure nowadays, as I mentioned with things like social media and smartphones, it's very, very easy to be entertained. Mm-hmm. But getting that sense of accomplishment, jumping over a hurdle, doing something that seemed very unlikely, and then getting to the finish line, you know, that's that's something that can't just be sort of automated. Yeah, I like how you just use instead of saying impo- like, it, not just something that's impossible, but something that seemed unlikely. I like that phrasing. I'm going to use it with you <laughs> elsewhere, <laughs> because that can apply to not just something that you think is might be difficult. But also, if you think it's unlikely that you will be able to complete something or tackle something because you don't like it. Um, it can apply right. to a lot of diff- different situations. I like that phrasing a lot. If it feels unlikely, and then it happens. Um, that's when. Well, it is. It's it's yours now, Sarah. Thank you. It belongs to the optimalist. <laughs> well, Tim, I think we've we've wandered in and out of a lot of topics and subtopics here, but it, now I feel like in the last like twenty minutes or so, we've really started to, to unearth some gems um, that I'm excited for people to hear and talk about. Um, hopefully, talk about with us. I mean, it's you know one thing that I'm so happy about for being on the podcast and chatting with you is because it it gives me a chance to sort of take these things that have been swirling in my head and sort of line them up and sort them out a bit. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, um, yeah, I I love when people think of you're not the first person who said something like that. And I love that's one of the reasons why I love podcasting in general as well as it does no matter what it is that we're talking about. It, there's nothing like being, even though we're not really face to face, but we're voice to voice, <laughs> voice <Yeah>. to voice <laughs> with another actual human being and just um, having a conversation about something that we think is not only valuable to us and um, students and other adults, but like, everybody listening can can also engage with it as well. And I think that um, it's so valuable. And that's another, this is why I'm saying like, we could meander into these subtopics forever, because that's another um, thing that I think about a lot when it comes to teaching in the age of AI, how do we get kids to interact with what's in front of them? Um, and not what becomes endlessly available virtually, because those, those hum- human yeah. voices and relationships from real people 
are um, invaluable. Yeah, totally. I think that's a good way to start uh, wrapping up this conversation. What about you? Sounds good to me. So the way we've been ending all these episodes is really by honing in for just a couple of seconds more on or minutes more, not seconds, really on on what it is that makes you um, you what makes Tim Tim and what kind of connects you to everything that you put into your work and the way you interact with your students and, and so on. So with that being said, can you, and you can answer as many of these as possible, or you can say no, <laughs> but can you give us something maybe that you're reading right now or watching or, or listening to, which could be a podcast or music or both, anything that's like being consumed by you that's, it could possibly be influencing the way you think. Sure. I'm going to answer all of Awesome. <laughs> um, so uh, as far as what I'm reading um, I'm still chugging away on this book that I have called The Secret Life of Programs by Jonathan Steinhardt, which is a book about how computers work sort of at the base level. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned, I've done coding projects and things like that, but that's all very sort of high level computer stuff. And this is very low level. So it explains just things like binary and how the hardware of a computer works. And I figure if I'm going to be using this technology, I owe it to myself to learn how it actually works foundationally. Mm -hmm. So I've been reading that. And then also it's, it's upstairs, so I don't have the details. But um, before bed, I've been reading from this book of Italian folk tales that my oh, cool. sister-in-law bought for me. And it's been, um, it's been awesome. It, it's a lot of unique, different stories. And a lot of them are sort of you can see variations of ones that are sort of more well-known to oh, me, like from Hans Christian Andersen and stuff. I have, I, oh, I almost said I have so much of that. I don't have so much of it, but I do have a few f a folktale um, collections that I have gone through lots of phases of, of being drawn to. Um, now you're making me want to do the same thing. That's a great pre-bedtime reading. That's a great time. Yeah, they're pretty short. You can just pick one up. You can read it and, and then, then hopefully you know, they make their way into your subconscious when you sleep <laughs> yes and then you make good good moral decisions the next day um cool and and also uh, it it should be notable to everybody that tim still feels the draw to study how computers work even though humans won't be creating technology pretty soon <laughs> because yes. ai will do it for us but that's the thing. We need to still be interested in how do we how do we make kids still interested in things that they won't have to even do? That's right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I feel like as things advance, I think a lot of people are skipping over some of the lower level stuff. Even with things like AI, people are learning, you know, how to use chat GPT, but they don't know how AI actually mm -hmm. works. So I'm I'm trying to do my part to to learn some of the basics. Yeah, I love that. And yoga, they call that the beginner's mind, right? Even when you're an advanced, mm -hmm. it's yeah. so great. Even if you're like the expert professor, like the it's the best to, to go back to being the beginner um, and think about it from that way. Um, okay, keep going. What are you watching? The thing I've been watching, this is a little bit strange. So this week, this past week on Twitch, there was an event called GDQ. Um, GDQ is games done quick and it is a 24 hour week long video game speed running oh marathon. <laughs> so 
it's a fundraiser where they they raise money for Doctors Without Borders. They actually just passed a million dollars yesterday, which is awesome. Cool. But it's just people from all over the world. They play video games and they just try to beat them as fast as possible. And so they can use like they can use bugs in the game. They can like do weird, crazy stuff. And with it being on twenty four seven, it's been really good. Just in, like in the background. Like I'll be walking through my living room and I'll be like, oh, someone's beating Pokemon <laughs> in an hour or whatever. And so it's I think that this week I've been pretty busy. And so I haven't really had the time to sit down and give, you know, 100 percent to watching something. So that's sort of just been running in the background. So a little bit of a bizarre selection, but that's what's been on my TV. So this you don't week. participate. You're watching. Is that that's what you're saying? No, no. I I, I mean, these people they spend all year just like practicing and they're the the amount of work that goes into this is absolutely mind-blowing it will be like a two-hour game and they need to memorize like every single step that they take in order to optimize the amount of time it takes it really is the speed the speed is the most important part yeah yeah and they they try to get um they try to get world records and things like that Mm -hmm. it's it's pretty wild um, interesting. I don't think we've had anyone bring up something like that, like a, something um, like internet based, like like Twitch in general, as far as what they're watching. But that's cool. And then so for music, this is another sort of bizarre answer as well. Um, so I have a, a record collection. I've been collecting records since I was in high school. And I picked up two records recently, and I listened to both of them. Um one of them is the album Lifted by Bright Eyes Yay. from the early 2000s, which is one of my favorite records. I got into them in high school and I uh, actually went to a music festival last weekend and they were selling records and I bought it there. So I listened to that. Cool. But specifically on vinyl, which is great. Yes. Yeah. Which is, is <laughs> good. And it's, you know, listening to a record is a good sort of mindful activity in my mind. Like you have to sit and listen and you have to flip the record over. I agree. Um, And then probably on the opposite end of the spectrum, the other record that I bought was from a British death metal band called Bolt Thrower, this album Mercenary that came out in the late nineties. So that's very different from Bright Eyes, but um, I also like to listen to some aggressive music as well. And people are sort of surprised when they find that out because I tend to be pretty calm. But eh, I, I like it. <laughs> You're so. very mindful about what you choose to listen to, Tim. <laughs> yes, that's right. And as we end all things here, uh, well, as we end the podcast, I don't know what other things I'm talking about. <laughs> Can you maybe, I know we've talked about focus throughout this entire episode and, and this, so I, I'm risking sounding redundant here, but I'm going to do it anyway. Can you um, maybe leave everybody with one way that you or method of focusing or having better attention that you find actually works. And this doesn't have to have anything to do with your kids, but works for you. Sure. So one thing that I do is whether it's a reminder on my phone or even an, having an object to remind me or using an, a different app or like focusable works really well for this as well. Just reminding yourself to be present throughout your day and just taking that time to just look at your surroundings, think about your environment, take in what's around you, and also to be gentle with yourself when you do that and to not be judgmental 
if you are having trouble focusing as well. I think those two things really go hand in hand Mm -hmm. because if I, and in the past I've done this where I'm in a situation where I am really, really having trouble being present and I end up trying to be present, but then I just end up getting frustrated and it makes everything worse. And just giving yourself that gentle reminder, it can really make a big difference, especially if it's done consistently and making it into a practice. And then uh, it can just, for me, it's helped me be present a lot throughout, uh, throughout the day. Awesome. Well, I think this might actually have been uh, so far our most focused episode on focus. Um, <laughs> there we which go. is great. I usually, it's usually woven in there somewhere, but I think that this wound up being really helpful for me. And I think, as you said before, to, to think for yourself, to think out loud about how some of these things apply to a variety of environments in our, in our lives and how they're evolving as we step into a new technological age. Yeah. And I hope that anybody who listens you know, you, you get something from this, maybe one of our thoughts resonated with you. And because I mean, I feel like a lot of these feelings, a lot of them are universal. And hopefully just, you know, knowing that, we're, you know, we're all on this journey together can be a helpful thought to think. Definitely. About. Well, thanks a lot, Tim. It was so great for you to take time out today to have this conversation with me. I know we talk, we talk a lot, but this is a different type of talking when you have to um, really be present for what it is that we're discussing. So thanks. Thanks so much, Sarah. This was awesome. Thanks, everyone, for listening this week. And thanks so much to Tim for sharing his mindfulness journey and being open about how he thinks ignoring the attention crisis will impact us and our students. As always, your feedback is the best way to help the podcast grow in its purpose and help us keep getting better. You can leave a comment on Substack, a review in Apple Podcasts, and you can reach me on Twitter at scandela9. You can listen and subscribe to The Optimalist Podcast wherever you love listening to great podcasts. New episodes are released every Wednesday. Links to all of these resources are available in the show notes. And The Optimalist Podcast is brought to you by Focusable, the only app that gives you the pulse you need for better attention. And it's free. Create an account today at getfocusable.com or by downloading Focusable on any iOS or Android device. You can also follow us at Get Focusable on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening to The Optimalist. I'll see you next week. Stay focused.